Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we'll be interviewing former Xerox CEO Ursula Barnes to talk about her new book, Where You Are Is Not Who You Are. But before we get to Ursula, I wanted to talk about what's happening in Washington, D.C. You know, we always start at the top of the show with politics, specifically the stark contrast in how Democrats and Republicans will power. This is what frustrates me to all hell. In case you missed it, Mitch McConnell told a conservative talk show host last week that he would not confirm a Biden-appointed Supreme Court justice if he is ever majority leader again. Doesn't matter what year it is. If he's the majority leader, it's not happening on his watch. Now, this shouldn't come as much as a surprise to anyone, but contrast Mitch being Mitch with Justice Breyer refusing to retire and running the risk of a Republican Senate majority in 2023. A Republican Senate majority led by Mitch that would sit on a court vacancy should one arise until they get a Republican president, which could be in 2024. Meanwhile, Breyer is giving speeches about partisanship while Mitch tells us he's going to punch us in the face and pack the courts again with Republican nominees if he gets back in power. We're also seeing Joe Manchin and moderate Senate Democrats hold us hostage water-down infrastructure, voting rights, and policing bills, all in the name of bipartisanship while Mitch McConnell plans to obstruct. No speeches about bipartisanship from Mitch, just power politics. Bipartisanship is a two-way street, but only one party is playing this game, and that's Democrats. And it's a game we're losing on the issues that will get our voters out back again in 2022. Joe Manchin and moderate Senate Democrats are almost single-handedly giving Congress back to Republicans by slow-walking the Biden agenda and undermining Democrats' case for maintaining control in 2022. And they are being aided and abetted by liberals like Justice Breyer, who are playing debate club while Mitch is playing power politics. (sighs) Needless to say, we got to tighten up and let's get like Mitch. He's showing you what you should do with power. But Democrats are fumbling the bag. And sadly, that's on that. Now on to our conversation with none other than, and it's a great show, Ursula Burns. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So today I have a very special guest with us on the Bakari Sellers podcast. 
Uh, we talk a lot about equity on this show, and we've had some amazing people like John Rogers and others who have come on the Bakari Sellers podcast. But today, I have none other than Ursula Burns with us. How are you doing today? I am doing extremely well today. It's a good day. That's good to hear. You know, we yeah. start each one of our conversations by asking our guests to introduce themselves to our listeners and have them walk them through the arc of their career. I feel like people know you as a CEO, but they don't know the key inflection point in your career when you first realized that you could become a CEO. What was the moment for you and what were some of the key players at the company on the board and even outside of Xerox that were instrumental in helping you navigate that jump from senior executive to CEO? Yeah, for me, it was not a, a moment. It was, an, it was a series. Of, it was a progression. I, I you know, started out like a normal person in the company doing jobs, then got into career type, deep building relationships in the company. And then I got to senior management. And senior management is when you manage large groups of people and you have some control over the budget and the strategy. And that was about eight or nine years into my career. And that was the first time that I realized that I was being given more than just a task to do, but I was being trusted with a key strategic element of the company's future. And from that point on, it was, it, then it became a journey, right? Then, then it became, you know, clocking time. <laughs> you said, okay, I've been doing this for five years, maybe another thing here. The company kept pushing things at me. They kept saying, how about this, going to this country, solving this problem, taking on this task. And after about five more years of that, so I'm, let's say I'm not 20 years in the company or so, then it became clear that I had a shot along with a lot of other people of sitting around the table. Um, I, it was not clear to me that I would be at the head of the table, but I knew that I could be around the table. Mm. The around the table part was pretty assured unless I screwed it up. And so <laughs> I would say after 20 years in the company, I said, yeah, you got it. You know, down South, we say that, uh, you know, if you don't have a seat at the table, you're on the menu. Um, yep. So I'm glad that you I'm glad that you were at the table in the book. You talk a lot about uh, what seemed to be an awakening in corporate America around racial inequity and police violence. Um, and I think we can all agree that's been long overdue. We're now over a year out from last year's protest. Do you think that corporate America has gotten any better at doing the work? Is it performative and the real work around real diversity and actually not just I just did a panel with uh, Black Enterprise. It was uh, Ben Crump. Charles Phillips and a few others. And it wasn't just the work outside or giving dollars, but actually changing your own corporate culture. Has corporate America rung that alarm? Have they rang that bell? I think that it is, first of all, you know, Crump and Phillips are Frazier and um, <laughs> Chenault. And I mean, we can just go with uh, you know, these iconic names that will become more relevant as we go on, right? As the future, but in the past it was Vernon Jordan and, and his, his compatriots. Um, I think that we are at a point where Bakari, it's, I'm so optimistic, but a little nervous, right? Because whenever I say this, I think I'm jinxing it a little bit. I think that we've gone past a moment and we're now definitely into a movement, not everywhere in corporate America. We, absolutely have people who do not want to believe it, will not support it, plain and simple, it's done. But those people will have short lives in their roles. If the rest of America, outside of the corporate structure of America, keeps pushing, 
If they do not allow, people say to me, how are we sure that they will? And I said, it's not about them. It's about us. The way that we keep this thing moving, the way that we keep seeing these signals that move into actual actions and then action to re- actually into results is that we don't, Bakari Sellers doesn't, Ursula Burns doesn't, my children do not, the doorman downstairs does not give up. Because what happens is that we yell a lot, then the next thing happens, whatever that thing is, and we actually get distracted or disheartened or something, we stop yelling. The only way this goes back is if we actually stop mm-hmm. yelling, stop engaging. So, and I think that we have, it's a year out, it's a year out, a year and a half out of pandemic time. It's a, a couple of months out of, I think, the worst leader we've ha- had in American history. And the question is, do we seize this opportunity not to fix all the problems immediately, but to assure that they are being looked at and addressed, not only in corporate America, but in foundations and universities and hospitals in government and obviously in corporate America. If we look at this and do not allow ourselves to, you know, take a breath or rest or get distracted, I think that there is no way in the world we'll go back. Corporate America will. Even the guys who don't believe it, they will have to catch up. They will do what needs to be done because they are economic animals. And the economy of this whole thing is pretty obvious. So long answer. I'm sorry. That's a no, no, no. But that's a good point you brought up because you were one of the black CEOs who spoke out against what was happening in Georgia around voter suppression. And lots of companies followed suit. But, you know, Mitch McConnell called it woke woke capitalism and these other things. But can you talk about how different the environment is now versus when you first started in uh, in Xerox, how, you know, the, the terrain is totally different? And how do you advise corporate leaders to think and navigate, um, especially diverse CEOs who probably have a heightened scrutiny in terms of speaking out on these type of issues? Yeah. So I think that, first of all, I'm going to start from the start. Woke capital, I don't care how we got there. I mean, how, you know, just because if the point is right, you can call it anything you want. I mean, Fine, I will t- I'll accept that label. My fundamental question back is, is, are you debating us because of when we did it or because of what we are doing? Because if it's about when we did it, you know, peace, I take it. If it's about what we're doing, then I want you to explain to me your rationale for doing what you're doing, which is fundamentally taking away the rights of Americans, black, brown, pink, it doesn't matter, the rights of Americans to cast their vote, their opinion in the form of a vote, legally rendered to easily gotten. I mean, it can't be that you have to wait in line for 40 hours. That, I mean, that's not Correct. reasonable. That that happens and you don't speak up against it. So that's the first thing. I, you know, distraction is the best way to get off the, is to protect yourself, is to distract the guy. And Mitch will not, I will not be distracted by him. So he can call it whatever he wants. I think the issue is you know, we are in the middle of it. Not everyone buys this this journey. Not everyone believes in it. Not everyone has the energy for it. African-American CEOs had to stand up and speak. But fortunately, we have a lot of white men and women, Asian, Indian men and women, whatever it is, men and women, CEOs, who say, this is not a black problem. Mm-hmm. This is a democracy problem. Correct. If we're going to debate this democracy problem, let's do it in full light with everybody's name properly assigned. 
that we can make sure that people understand that we have business leaders who are not for a free and fair America. Those people have the right to exist. My question is, do they have the right to lead companies? They can exist. And by the way, they have the right to lead companies if they're shareholders, they're consumers, and their communities allow them to do it. And that's where we come in, right? That's where we come in. I don't know if I answered your question, but I get really tweaked when I have to defend supporting something. We're not talking about supporting the right to carry a gun, which is not a handgun, but an Uzi. We're We're talking about the first thing, right? You can vote. It's not even, it's like written into the fundamental structure of this country. And we are now debating whether or not that should be free and easy. And the answer that some people are saying, interestingly coordinated and timed around the, the, okay, God, I call it BS. And I'm so upset about this. You know, I get so emotional. My daughter says to me, you got to stop being shrill about this because I get really wrapped up. What are we talking about here? We're Mm -hmm. not talking about giving the election to someone. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about rigging the vote. We're not talking about any of that. We're not talking about overfunding places. You know, we're not talking about dark money. We're talking about the right for someone to have hours in the day to register to vote and then have some time in the day to vote. That's all we're talking about. And what they're saying is, and, and literally if they don't have the time and they have to sit and, 100 degree temperatures and it's hot that we can actually give them water and not be arrested. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's an odd thing for me to have to defend. <laughs> we don't want you getting a misdemeanor record for handing out water in Fulton County. Um, Which is basically what would happen to you. <laughs> correct. Uh, where you are is not who you are. You know, I've had the pleasure of interviewing Cicely Tyson just days before she transitioned mm-hmm. uh, this year. And one of the questions I asked her that I'll ask you is, uh, why did you choose to write your memoir uh, now? I mean, you could have literally written one years ago, but there was something about this moment that made you write this book now. Now, I will tell you Cicely Tyson, so you can't steal her answer. Cicely Tyson says that she wasn't ready to write a memoir before now. So it was the right time now. So what, what's your answer to that question? I, I must say I'm going to steal a piece of her answer. <laughs> I never had the idea of writing a memoir. I mean, what the heck? I mean, I'm an engineer. I run freaking companies. I have a relatively simple life. And from my perspective, while it ended up good, it didn't seem like it was noteworthy to kind of put in pages. I mean, really? You know, I grew up in a housing project. So, you know, all the stories for really, how many times has this been heard? A thousand uh, times. The reason why I did it when I started it, the reason why I started it when I started it, you have to remember, or you have to know, you can't remember, that I started this before pandemic, before mm-hmm. George Floyd, after Trump. Mm. But it was before both of those things that this book was started. You went on some ebbs and flows. Absolutely. So this book was started right before my husband died as well. So this was all this stuff that happened. I was well on the path um, to the book. And the reason why I wrote it was not because of all of these events. It didn't start because of that. It started because everyone said to me, I speak a lot, primarily to kids, quote unquote kids, college, you know, college or graduate students or um, social organizations a lot. I speak a lot. And they tell me all the time, you should write your book. I mean, my God, you, you should write a book. You should write a book. You should write a book. I never thought about it from the perspective of my story is worthy of a book until my husband, before he died, said, you should just write this book because I've been getting offers to write the book. And then 
Vernon Jordan said to me, you should write your book, Ursula. Mm. So I then said, I answered one of the calls. And then, as you probably know, Bakari, once you get, it's kind of hard to say no once you said, I'll think about it. Then it started, it's, you know, I think about it, that meant to them, yes. And then we just started, we started moving. It took a lot longer than I thought. Oh, wow. How long did they give you to write it? They gave me a long time, but we had to change strategy because we had the pandemic right in the friggin' middle of the damn thing. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I started in, let's say, 2018 and a whole bunch of stuff happened, you know, that kind of slowed it down and, and, and then stopped it for a while. And then I finished it largely. The way you write these books is that you write them and then you read them and somebody else reads them and then you have to do some corrections. And then two things happened. We had the pandemic and my husband died different order. My husband died. We had the pandemic. And, and then ultimately at the very end of the book, Vernon Jordan died. This yeah. is when the book was pretty much locked before I read it. And when I, before I read it in, you know, I did the audio version as well. And I had to go back and do a little bit of thinking about the content at these different times. Right. And, and not only about the content, but about how I was feeling and how confident I was with what I said, um, whether, you know, just the normal stuff of whether we captured the then times with the current times from a contextual standpoint, I had to do a little bit of modification. So it took a lot longer than I thought. I will say I'm not a writer and I don't mean that to defend myself if the book is poor. But I mean, it no, really. yeah, the book is, the, the book is actually good. And I'm not a writer either. And so let me just tell you from one non-writer to another, you pulled it off, but I, let me, I got the two questions. One, and this is just for those who haven't had the opportunity to read the book and mine switched because when I started this book, I, they would I'll tell you, what audience are you writing for? My audience was black women. Yep. During the pandemic and George Floyd, you had more white folk who wanted to hear and learn about the black experience. So the audience shifted. But what do you want readers to take from this book? And even a more central theme that I got out of your book, talk about your mom and the role that she played. Yeah, there's two things. One is this life that people call spectacular was not done by a single individual. First of all, no, it's not that spectacular. The results were, but the path wasn't. It wasn't done by a single individual, but it was impossible without like just an overabundance of help from yes. all over the place. People who cared, people who didn't even know that they were caring, but cared. The third is that we have written off all of the Ursula Burns that are in Brooke housing projects or wherever they are, we've written them off by zip code, by not having insane mothers, like, you know, by going to schools that are not ready, but we've written them off. And because we've, because there was an action against them, we call somebody like me spectacular. Listen to what I'm saying. Not that I'm spectacular. People look at me and say, you're spectacular. I happen to, find a way with help of a lot of people to get around the, in the impediments. There are more Ursula Burns in Baruch housing projects born every day, living every day today that we do not allow to, ex we just, we have black spot schools that we send them to. We have healthcare institutions that don't take care of them. So, on, so, on, so, on. so the first thing is that this looks spectacular, but please understand when you read, I had, a reasonably good education, well below the, my peers in of any white type. I had a mother who was who cared about her children, and I had some people who helped. That should be enough for most people to do it, and it's just not. 
That's that's number one. And please don't give up on the people. Don't don't try to fix the people. Fix the friggin' system. Amen. The system is the problem here. This is not about people born. You're not born lazy and slovenly when you you don't come out that way. That's that's the first. The second thing is about the book that I wanted to say about the book is that there's a whole theme in the book of black people, women, black and brown people, women contorting themselves to fit into a society that was designed by and for white men. And that's governed, ruled, judged by white men to fix this fully. We have to fix not our ability to contort. We have to Mm. fix the system. Mm. We have educational systems, social justice organizations, healthcare systems, companies, the church. Look, let's keep looking. That are designed by and for white men and everybody else is scrambling to fit in. These people are less than, far less than 30% of the population. What the hell is going on here? Aren't we fast smart enough to look back and say, maybe we got to change some of the rules, not the people to fit the rules. You bring me to two questions. One, I was, when I was writing and preparing the script for today, one of the things that sticks out about your book is that you were so invested in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. And my question to you is, as you talked about, I say this to folk all the time, you say the same thing, like I'm not atypical. People wanna look at us like we're unicorns. I'm like, I'm not a unicorn. I was just blessed and fortunate enough to have opportunity. So my job is to create those opportunities for others. But, but as a father of two beautiful black daughters, how do we create more Ursula Barnes, Burns, excuse me, and encourage more black women in particular to take up degrees and careers in science, technology, engineering, and math? So I think twofold, maybe three. First, can you just tell them that it exists? Schools, <laughs> schools, <laughs> adults, we actually speak to our particularly brown and black girls. Forget the, forget the boys. We speak about everything, careers, but we say nothing about STEM. Can we just tell them it's out there? Give them some facts and data and say, by the way, it only takes four years to, of college to get your first degree there, like everything else. You do not have to be a friggin' math insane person. You could be just good at it. And it solves most of the problems that are, we are trying to address today and deals with most of the opportunities that are out there. Everything from potable water to healthcare distribution to healthcare to everything, robotics, big data, everything. Why are you not after it? And then finally, if you do it, you're probably going to get a damn good job and you won't have to be scrambling around looking for work and get a good salary. If we said that to all the smart kids that we know, that's number one. Can we just tell them about it? Tell them about it, please. Number two, can we give them examples? This is mm. what I try to do a lot. Example, this, you know, I'll show you somebody who looks a little bit like you. Or they don't have, may not have both the ingredients, but they have one as a female. Anything that gives them some hope, understanding of what this is, and then some idea of what life is in it. These two things will help tremendously. That's not just teachers, it's parents, mothers, and fathers. And it is boys in general that is one of the biggest crushers of girls in this space. It's white, particularly educators who crush everybody else. Say yes, they call them, what is it called? Tracking. I'm going to track you towards fashion. I'm going to track you towards, by the way, even law. I'm going to track you towards an English degree. I like fashion. I like law and like English degrees. 
I just want to add something in there. Can we start tracking some people towards engineering? I, I just think it's it's one of these, it's a secret weapon against progress. If you know what I mean. It's what, you know, it's a secret weapon against progress. We just keep the status quo going. They don't like science. They don't like math. Keep them out of it. And look at these startups. Look what the hell is happening, right? I know. I know. Billions of dollars overnight with these teenagers who don't know their way out of the friggin' bathroom. They look like X. They're less well-developed. Generally, they're definitely not mature. I have a whole bunch of those guys in the, in the house. Why don't we give some of this activity and process to them? You know, that that's that's amazing that you say that because, I, you know, being an example is the number one thing we can do for people Absolutely. and just showing them, you know, like Jacob Philadelphia, awesome. the four year, the four year old boy who asked Barack Obama, does his hair feel like his? And Barack yeah. Obama reached over and shout out to North Carolina NC State University, one of the uh, best engineering programs of any college, like not just not just HBCU in the country. Uh, a couple more questions before I get you out of here, because I know you're a busy woman, but this book was so good that I want people to go buy it and read it. Talk about Vernon Please Jordan. Please buy it and read it. <laughs> Please buy it. Well, shit. <laughs> At least buy it. <laughs> Not you. It's a good. It's a good book. Uh, but talk about Vernon Jordan and the how he pushed corporate diversity and his role. You know, people hear the name all the time, and there are a lot of folk listening who, even black folk, who know the name Vernon Jordan, but they really don't know his contribution. How would you describe what his contributions are? This is a great man, Bakari. I don't know if you have oh, any yeah. chance to Oh, yeah. Many times over. He is almost perfect. So he's handsome as hell. Yes. I mean, in all little ways. I mean, everything about him. He has an amazing voice. He has all these physical attributes that are phenomenal. Besides that, which, you know, we, just, we, can, we can do that. This movie star, right? Movie star, no impact <laughs> on their lives. He actually was an amazing friend. Mm. He took my life, as I said, at his, at his memorial service. He took my good life. He transformed it through his friendship alone from a good life to an extraordinary life. This guy did it for me, did it for Ken Chenault, did it for Kim Coopersmith at Aiken Gump, did it for... Uh, Sarah Barnes did, did it for, I mean, little, you, you don't even know it. You don't know this. This guy is on the board of, if he's on the board of a company, their chance of having a diverse CEO goes up by a thousand percent. Literally, it happens. He's on the board of American Express. He's on the board of Xerox Corporation. He was on the board of what was the parent of Sarah, Sarah Lee. Guess what? Woman CEO, black CEO, black woman CEO. Mm. And, and there's more. He's on the board of the Ford Foundation. And who's the CEO of the Ford Foundation? Yeah, that's Darren right. Walker. That's right. The reason why I say it is obviously he's, he's not the, he doesn't run the board. But this is an example of exactly what diversity does in its best sense. He taught these organizations to look at the whole person, including their blackness and their gayness, and their femaleness and value all of that in the person in the moment. Not to look at it as, and we have a, it is look at the value that they bring to that position. For me, directly, he watched me. He prodded me. He scolded me. He gave me exposure. 
He was an unbelievable example. He protected me like you would not believe in ways that I didn't even know. He invested his time and energy, his heart and his mind into me and my success. He did that for Ursula Burns, for Ken Chenault, for Darren Walker. Let's keep going. I mean, literally, just a list. And you, I remember saying in the book, when I came, I, I thought he did this only for me. I was, I was sitting there going, <laughs> oh my God, he's a, yeah, he did it for me. And, 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 and I, I said this at his eulogy as well. I don't know how you have the time or the organization to kind of reach out continuously at the right time to so many people, but he did it. This is an example. This is the example of a mentor and a sponsor and a friend. This is an example of what black people have to do for other black people. Literally, you know, things happening. He would call me and say, I'm headed to X. You're busy tonight. I'm like, you know, I was busy, but it's, it's I'm free now. So where is X? And I would say at the end, I wonder what the heck he, in the beginning, I said, what does he want? What does he want? He must want something for me. Guess what he wanted for me? Do good. Girl. Friendship. Do good. Friendship. Open it. Don't do. do if you're the first, if you're the first, don't be the last. Be the last. Pay and it it's forward. just, he was, we should absolutely, I mean, we, in which we are just spend a whole bunch of time teaching people about this man, not because of the first part of his glamour and his voice and his strength, but because of the gracefulness that he used when he made friends and developed friends. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. My last question to you is one of the things along the same lines of, of Vernon Jordan. My father and Vernon Jordan were extremely close. Oh. Um, and uh, one of the things that you embody that he that. embodied as well. I know that. I should have known that even more personally. <laughs> uh, both, both of you guys are unapologetically black and you're authentically black and you don't shy away from who you are. And if anything, you've embraced and leveraged your diversity and lived experiences through your career. There's a phrase that says bringing your true self to your career. But a lot of black folks, especially my age group, 
sometimes they feel like that's a trap or sometimes they're afraid because they feel like they have to be something else or do something else. Now, I don't want to spoil the book, but what's your voice or what's your, uh, what's your advice for being authentically who you are and leveraging that lived experience in corporate roles and when we're in this corporate spaces? How does somebody go and just be who they are? In the beginning, you have to understand this is an asset, really. I mean, they are, you know, particularly in this moment. I mean, my goodness, if you're a black female engineer and you're good at it, which most of them are, if they got out of all these schools that they go to, <laughs> think about what you are. You are a friggin' amazing, amazingly valuable asset. And as I said mm-hmm. in the book, people pay more for things that are unique than they do for things that are common. Correct. First, please take this moment and use it to build up your muscles because in the future, when you're not that unique, we're going to have to continue this fight, right? You're going to have. So first thing is, please understand that this is not the worst place to be in the world. Actually, particularly if you're educated, this is, this is a good place to be and you have responsibilities. So don't cower. I never did. I don't know why part of it was my mother, but I never did. I literally knew from the first day I walked into high school to when I went to college to that, when I went to work that I looked around and said, my God, there's nobody like me. If I raise my hand, they will probably call on. And if they call on you, the only responsibility that you have is to actually speak the truth, speak sensibly. So that number one, number two, I couldn't choose another person. I do not envision my, I I couldn't prove another person, gender, race, uh, where where I am then and now that I would want to be. I am extremely comfortable with being black and being a woman. And actually, this is going to sound horrible. I look across the room sometimes and say, how boring it must be to be. <laughs> this is not going to come out right. It's going to sound racist. But, you know, we have texture. We have shades. You know, we have complexity. I have, women have possibilities and ability. We give birth to humans. I just can't imagine another place to be. So I am really thrilled about being black and being a woman and prefer that than any others, even if the other guys have made a lot of more money than I do. It just seems to be so ordinary. Mm, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. And I, I don't want to be, I like where I am. I like the fact that we can look around the room and we can do the nod. I don't know. I saw this on some show where the guy just, you know, you look across the room, you do the nod and they know exactly. This is exactly we we have to love this. How can we not love this? Amen. And what's happened is people have said, you can't love it because we're going to pay you less money. We can't love it because look, at we'll beat you up in the streets. You can't love it because whatever, whatever. I think it's just the opposite. Think about it. You know what I mean. It's just like this. It's kind of cool. When I saw, when I first saw President Barack Obama, first of all, you know, I was like beside myself that this guy was going to run for president. And when he got the nominations, I was like, my God, this could actually, how can this We could do it. It can be done. It could be done. And then I met him and he walked across the room and this guy looked exactly like a brother. And had the same swag. That's what I mean. The whole thing, exactly like a brother. 
the swag. He was not pretending. He didn't practice it in the morning. He he didn't change his anything. He was just who he was. I remember saying when I came home, I in, in a strange way, as only women can say to other women, he's really fine. And what I meant by that, <laughs> it was not, you know, I, I think you know, he was fine. You know, he was skinny, that kind of thing. <laughs> skinny with big ears. I get it. Hey, hey, don't, no you judgment. Know, I, no yeah. judgment. I got you. I got you. But you know exactly what I meant. This is the perfect, it was like, wow, that's exactly what we're shooting for. This is yep. what we're shooting for. Confident, just kind of beautiful, fitting in, feeling as though his skin, this was, Vernon did this, Ken does this really well. A lot of my... Oh, like Ken is Ken, Ken has that it. That's I'm still, right. you know, one one of the one of the things that I've always wanted for is I, I would have these conversations with people in Obama White House. I always wanted Ken Chenault's name to be on our money. I thought he was going to be a damn good Secretary of Treasury. It would have been a huge pay cut, <laughs> but I thought he was going to be a really. He didn't think, want it, I think, but I think, he, I think he had more options than you think about that. And he made the, <laughs> the, the, the he made some decisions that were in his in his interest and in, in his the best interest. interest at the end, right? I think uh, yeah, I, I agree. You met my husband, he's he's not dead. If you ever met my husband, you would have said had the same thing. He is he's this old time black man yeah. with no forgiveness. You know what I mean? He, <laughs> he was 80 when he died. He was he knows a lot of history. He didn't do this BS about he was he spoke, you know, in that voice when you had to speak in that voice, he was perfect. And I think that this this whole the reason why I'm on this is that. We have to celebrate significantly more about who we are, how Correct. we feel, and make that normal, not only to us, to other people. It's a different culture. We seem to be comfortable with the fact that the Chinese people have an accent and the XYZs have this. But in Black, particularly Black America, we, ha- we have been and others have been so conditioned to think about this as a negative set of attributes. I think it's exactly the opposite. This has been such a joy. I'm going to actually make sure my, my daughter doesn't listen to all my episodes, but I'm going to make sure she listens to this one. Oh, Ursula she? Burns. She's 16. Oh, my God. I'll make sure she listens to it. I'll even talk to her. There you go. Thank you so much. Thank I love you so much for everything that you have done and you are doing. Go out and buy the book. Thank you for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast. Thank you so much, Bakari. Before I let you go, I want to talk about this exchange yesterday between Russian President Vladimir Putin and ABC News reporter Rachel Scott. Here's a clip. The list of your political opponents who are dead, prisoned, or jailed is long. Alexei Navalny's organization calls for free and fair elections, an end to corruption. But Russia has outlawed that organization, calling it extremists. And you have now prevented anyone who supports him to run for office. So my question is, Mr. President, what are you so afraid of? And she followed up with more smoke. That's courage, y'all. A murderous dictator like Putin isn't challenged like this to his face in Russia or anywhere else for that matter. This is real journalism where you hold power to account and all the dodging in the world by Putin doesn't change the fact that he's a killer and he should finally be held accountable for what he's done. That starts with calling folks to the mat like this sister did. Very few journalists would do what Rachel Scott did and we need far more courage in journalism these days. Cheers to you, Rachel. Let's wrap her in bubble wrap. And that's that on that. We'll see you all on Monday.